Welcome to Brain Science, the podcast that explores how recent discoveries in neuroscience are unraveling the mystery of how our brain makes us human. I'm your host, Dr. Ginger Campbell, and this is episode 158. Today, I'm welcoming back philosopher Patricia Churchland. Dr. Churchland was previously interviewed in episodes 55 and 81, so it's been quite a few years since we last talked. This interview focuses on Dr. Churchland's new book, Conscience, the Origins of Moral Intuition. As always, you can get episode show notes and transcripts at brainsciencepodcast.com. You can send me email at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or submit voice feedback at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis. Normally, premium subscribers and Patreon supporters get the episode transcript within a few days of release of a new episode. Unfortunately, last month's transcript was delayed because Lori Wolfson, my longtime transcriber, had to retire unexpectedly due to health concerns. I'm being very picky about choosing her replacement, but the problem should be resolved by the time you hear this episode. As usual, I'll be back after the interview to highlight the key ideas. Have you ever considered hiring a personal coach? I'm currently training to become a certified professional coach, and I will begin accepting a limited number of clients in November of 2019. The key tool of coaching is asking empowering questions to help clients live more fulfilling lives. If you think you might benefit from this approach, you can learn more by emailing me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash coaching. Well, Pat, it is so great to have you back on Brain Science. This is episode 158, and the last time we talked, it was episode 81 back in 2012. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Well done. (laughs) So it's been a while. So for the sake of, I might have a few new listeners compared to back in 2012, so maybe you could start out by just telling them a little bit about yourself. Yes, I'd be happy to do that. So I'll start with what I work on and what my source of great intellectual passion is. And that has to do with the interface between what we're discovering in neuroscience and how it has an impact on the grand old philosophical questions, questions about how it is that we know anything, what it is to learn and remember, what what is consciousness, why do we sleep and dream? Most recently, the interest has been in questions about the nature of morality. Why do we have moral concerns? Why do we care about each other? I think that we are learning from neuroscience about all of those topics, about the nature of ourselves and our mental processes and how they go right and how they go wrong sometimes. So that's the nature of of my research. I guess I've had a sort of foot in both neuroscience and philosophy for a very long time. I grew up on a farm in British Columbia in a very sort of rural, uh, kind of wild, uh, mountainous area. 
And uh, I went to the University of British Columbia as an undergraduate. And then I went to University of Pittsburgh to do graduate work in philosophy. But I left after a year because I had the opportunity to go to Oxford. And I thought, well, wouldn't that just be grand? And so that's where I ended up. And I am married to Paul Churchland, who is also a scientist slash philosopher. And uh, the two of us work very closely together. Great. And I think the first time I interviewed you, we talked about your book that I think is still considered a classic, Neurophilosophy. And I was wondering if you would just briefly talk about how that book fit into where philosophy of mind is today. Well, in 1986, when I published Neurophilosophy, the idea then was, as I, I sort of indicated, that I wanted to see what would be the impact of discoveries in neuroscience on how we thought about the nature of the mind. At that time, however, philosophers were pretty much committed to the idea that even if the brain was somehow responsible for how we see and think and feel and so forth, that we would never understand those things from the point of view of neuroscience, that these were things that really philosophers were best disposed to theorize about. And by theorizing, they meant that they did what was called conceptual analysis, which was to take a concept like oh, let's say self, and to try to use their imagination to think about cases where you would call something a self and where you wouldn't, and that they could really discover the nature of selfness by doing this conceptual analysis. And my view is, you know, probably whatever it turns out the self is, It's something that is a construct of the brain, and there are going to be many components that go into it, and your conceptual analysis ain't going to tell us nothing (laughs) about that. And, of course, the philosophers really hated that. The publication of neurophilosophy was not met amongst philosophers with any sort of joy, (laughs) whereas amongst neuroscientists, I think they thought, yeah, this kind of sounds reasonable. That's, uh, yeah, it sounds like the direction we should take seriously. Over the last couple of decades in Anglo-American philosophy, I think there has been kind of divergence. That is, there's a small subset of philosophers who are still in philosophy departments who think the empirical data about the nature of the brain have to be relevant. How could you just turn your back on them? Whereas the dominant group, I would say, are still doing good old-fashioned conceptual analysis. They're not talking to psychologists. They're not talking to neuroscientists. They're not talking to anthropologists. They're talking to each other. And they're very insular. And largely what they have to say is not really helpful in moving the carts forward. I don't think there has been anything that you would call a philosophical breakthrough in the understanding of the nature of the mind that has come out of conceptual analysis. How about in Europe? It seems to me that other... I haven't interviewed that many philosophers now that I think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess that might be the reason. 
Well, funnily enough, I think that there were always some philosophers of science who saw the importance of integrating these that sort of grand-scale philosophical questions with data. But these were largely philosophers who were in physics. They were not philosophers who were interested in neuroscience. And there was, especially on the part of For example, the MIT philosophers like Jerry Fodor, an absolute hidebound conviction that there were no data from neuroscience that could possibly be useful in understanding the nature of the mind. And even Dan Dennett, who now thinks of himself as sort of brain friendly in much of the 20th century, took the view that cognition is like the software and the brain is like the hardware. And we don't really care about the details of the hardware when we want to understand how an application like Word works. All we care about is the software. So the details of the brain and neurotransmitters and membranes and proteins, this is irrelevant. I don't think he says that so much anymore, but he still does say that cognition is the software and the brain is the hardware, and what we're interested in is the software. And I think, you know, for one thing, it's a metaphor that doesn't fall gracefully onto the brain at all. I mean, it's just a mistake. Well, that I think is a good overview for what's happened in the past. So you want to talk a little bit about, maybe give me an overview of your new book. Yes. So the new book is called Conscience, the Origins of Our Moral Intuitions. The idea really was to ask a question about why we are moral at all. That is, why do we have a conscience? Why do we care? Why do we incur a cost to ourselves in order to help others? Now, we don't always do it, and sometimes we are selfish, and sometimes we are badly behaved, but we very often do do it. So the question is, where does all this come from? Traditionally, people have thought that there are really two possible sources. One is it comes from religion. There are several reasons why that's not an adequate answer. But I think one really important reason is that anthropologists know very well that there are many groups who function extremely well, have good social norms, show courage, compassion, they care for each other, and so forth. But they don't have anything like an organized religion. They do have moral virtues and moral values, and there are customs and ways of doing things that structure their social interactions. But they don't have organized religion. And presumably, For most of Homo sapiens, 300,000 years on this planet, that's how we were. And it wasn't really until the advent of agriculture and the emergence of larger groups and towns that we see organized religion coming into its own. But even then, it's very interesting that although there are some religions who think that there is a divine lawgiver who tells you what the moral rules are, 
there are very large and well-established religions, such as Buddhism and Confucianism, that don't believe any such thing. Interestingly, those religions emphasize the moral virtues, the idea that rules can be kind of flexible guidelines, but they should not be precepts to which you adhere regardless and strictly and absolutely and so forth. So I think in general, the anthropology suggests that we might see religion as having a role in how people think about morality in organized, highly developed societies. But it isn't that religions are the font of of morals. It's really rather that what religions have done is kind of take the moral inclinations that people have because they are social animals. And they have sort of stylized those impulses, and then sometimes in very good ways, provided a kind of forum for discussion, for how people might think about exceptions and changes and what to do when the environment changes and so forth. So, I mean, religion can have a significant role in discussions about the nature of morality, but what it isn't is the fountainhead of it. So what else do people think? If, if it doesn't come from a religion, where the heck else does it come from? And so many philosophers, at least I would guess since Kant, have taken the view that it's because humans are uniquely rational that we also adhere to moral norms and that we use our reason and manage to figure out what the moral thing is to do. And so, for example, the philosopher Thomas Nagel, for whom I actually have a great deal of respect, although I think he's just dead wrong, but he took the view that that morality is kind of independent of our biology and that we reason about it in the way we reason about a completely autonomous domain, a domain autonomous from all of our biological interests and impulses and inclinations and so forth. So those are kind of the two standard ways that people have thought about it. Now, when I say people, I don't mean everybody, but those have been the the kind of dominant themes. So is there anything else on the table? Very much so. The people who thought about this very differently include Aristotle, Darwin, and the two great Scots philosophers, David Hume and Adam Smith. So in in The Descent of Man, Darwin asks, what could be the origin of our moral sense or our conscience? And he suggests that there are three things, and one is social instinct. The second one is habits and skills, like the development of compassion or concern or generosity or truth-telling. And the third one, he thought, was sort of problem-solving in a very practical way. And although he said it in in this really crisp way, that actually captures the heart of what Aristotle thought as well. Then the question is, okay, Darwin, okay, Aristotle, so why are we social? Why are we like that? What's the good of that? 
how could it have evolved? And here I think anthropologists, both those who study animal behavior and those who know something about the social life of people who live in small groups, hunter-gatherer groups, for example, I think here the anthropologists have been really, really helpful. So, for example, amongst the animal behavior people like Franz de Waal, he has realized for years that many species of mammal and bird are very social. They like to be together. They feel pain when they're separated. They get anxious when they're separated. They groom each other. They console each other. They grieve the death of another individual to whom they were very close. They share food. They act together in a concerted fashion sometimes in order to hunt or to cooperate in defense. These are very important social activities which have analogs in what humans do as well. And this suggested that maybe things are very deep here. Maybe there is a very long-term evolutionary reason why all mammals are to some degree social. Some are very highly social, such as baboons and marmosets and humans and prairie voles, but they're all social to some degree. This month, I'm glad to welcome back one of my favorite sponsors, Audible. I've been a loyal Audible subscriber since 2003. Audible is always adding new content, and now monthly subscribers get an audiobook and two Audible originals that aren't available anywhere else. Start listening with a 30-day Audible trial, and your first audiobook and two Audible originals are free. Visit audible.com slash ginger or text ginger to 500-500. Before we get back to the interview, I want to recommend Michelle Obama's autobiography, Becoming. Besides her wonderful narration, a few things stood out for me. First, I got to know the First Lady and President Obama from an entirely different perspective. And I also got a sense of what it would be like to be a black woman at a predominantly white Ivy League college. This is a book about people, not about politics and I highly recommend it. If you aren't already a member of Audible, you can begin your 30-day free trial by going to audible.com forward slash ginger, G-I-N-G-E-R, or text ginger to 500-500. So then the question is, well, why are they social at all? I mean, after all, reptiles seem to have done very well. (laughs) I mean, they're social sometimes because they kind of hang out together, maybe to confuse a predator, but they don't help. So that even a salamander who has a whole lot of babies just hatching doesn't really care very much if a bird comes and, you know, helps themselves. She just carries on foraging. So there isn't that connection even between mother and offspring in the case of reptiles, at least by and large. 
And we do see sociality in insects, however. And as, as you know, of course, Ed Wilson has done you know, really, really wonderful work on the social insects of termites, and, uh, but especially of ants. But mammalian sociality is importantly different from insect sociality. To put it crudely, it's much less under the control of the genetics that lay down the brain circuitry. It's much more flexible. It allows for changes depending on changes in conditions and so forth. So insect sociality is fascinating, but mammalian and bird sociality is just very different. So why are mammals social at all? And the answer that I suggest, and I think that other people have probably come to a very similar idea, is that something is very special about mammals, and that is they're warm-blooded. And about 200 million years ago, something kind of amazing happened, and that is that warm-blooded creatures appeared on the planet. And this was a masterful evolutionary innovation because it allowed the animals to forage at night and it allowed them to venture into climates where the cold-blooded animals couldn't go because they couldn't exist. Now, masterful though it was, there was a price. And the price is very simple. Gram for gram, a warm-blooded creature has to eat 10 times as many calories as a cold-blooded creature. I mean, as you know, if you have a snake, you can go away for a week and just leave some crickets, and that's fine. You can't do, <laughs> you can't do that with a cat or a dog. Right. They get really hungry. They have to eat a lot. So although endothermy, being able to generate your own warmth and keep your temperature within a very tight range, although endothermy was really a, a fantastic innovation, it came at this price. So the price puts huge ecological constraints on evolution. And those constraints seem to have allowed for the development of being smart. In other words, one really good way of coping with having to get so many more calories is to be a lot smarter. Now, there's kind of two ways you can get smart. One is to wait for the genes to change, <laughs> and that's kind of slow. The other is to take learning mechanisms such as they are in reptiles and just scale them up hugely. And that seems to have been the solution that was found for mammals. The solution produced what we now call cortex, this amazing six-layer structure that all mammals have, that no non-mammals have, that can get bigger and bigger depending on how the species evolves, that can have specialized sensory areas that seem to be able to evolve fairly quickly. And cortex is what makes the difference. Just let me make a quick aside here about birds. I'm going to leave birds to one side because although birds are very smart and very social and warm-blooded, they don't have anything that is exactly like cortex, 
but they have a very close analog. And that's kind of a whole separate story that we could talk about someday. Okay, so you got this great cortex. So what's that got to do with sociality? I mean, yeah, it allows you to be smart. You can forage. So what's the deal? The deal is that in order for you to learn, in order for you to make use of cortex in being this humongous learning machine, you have to be born very immature. That's your lot. You have to have room for the neurons to sprout, to grow, to embody the information that you're collecting as you're learning. The way sociality arises then is that if you're going to be born very immature, there better be somebody around to take care of you because otherwise you're totally vulnerable. And this whole strategy of being an endotherm that's very smart is not going to work. If I can put this in a sort of storytelling framework, it looks like the way that Mother Nature solved this was to find some individual that has the passion to do something that's actually quite hard, and that is taking care of babies. And to do that, the one that was handy, of course, was the mother because she just gave birth. I mean, in the case of turtles, the mother's long gone by the time the babies hatch, but not in the case of mammals. So the mother is the one who Mother Nature designates as the caregiver. And in order to ensure that care is given, what happened over who knows how many hundreds of thousands of years is the wiring changed. The wiring changed, and the way I like to think about this, and this is a little bit metaphorical, but I think it's basically right, is this. Suppose that you just think about the wiring that you need in order to take care of your own survival. You have to be able to, to keep yourself warm, to keep yourself safe, and so forth. Take that wiring that's all kind of me survival -y, and expand it to me and mine. So that just as I feel pain when I'm hungry, a certain kind of pain when I'm hungry, so I feel pain when my babies are separated from me or when they are squealing because they are hungry. And so there is this pain when there's separation, when the baby is, is attacked by a predator, for example, or falls out of the nest, and the mother is wired to take corrective action. So it's like the ambit of me expands to me and mine. And the crucial part of the story seems to have been to take as Mother Nature often does, to take some old mechanism and repurpose it. And oxytocin seems to have been, and the, uh, the sibling peptide, vasopressin, oxytocin and vasopressin seem to have been the sort of fundamental stage for rewiring for infant care. What's kind of amazing about all this is that on the one hand, you have reptiles who really don't have infant care of any kind. Alligators may be an exception. But all of a sudden, you have this 
care for others, this attachment. And it's attachment that motivates very specific kinds of behavior, feeding behavior, defending, cuddling, keeping warm, and so forth. And this is the beginning, this is the platform for social behavior and all of its ramifications and variations in mammals generally. And part of the reason that we know that came from the wonderful story about the prairie voles. As you know, there are many species of vole. And montane voles are kind of what we think rodents in general are like. So montane voles, a male and a female, will meet, they'll mate, and then they go on their merry way. He's going to get more action. She's going to have the babies. Prairie voles are very different. A male and a female will meet, they'll mate, and then they're bonded forever. Now, endocrinologists, including Larry Young, ask the question, so what's the difference in the brain between the prairie vole and the montane vole that allows for this social monogamy? And the answer seemed to have to do with oxytocin and with the density of receptors for oxytocin so that oxytocin can do its work. And roughly speaking, in the reward system of the prairie vole, there is a much higher density of receptors for oxytocin than in the montane vole. That turned out, after various kinds of experiments to look for causality and get beyond just correlation, that turns out to be an absolutely crucial part of the story. Now, finding out exactly how attachment in all of its complexity really works has has been a really big and ongoing business for the last couple of decades. We do know now that an important part of the story is not just oxytocin, but the fact that the release of oxytocin when the mother is cuddling or suckling the baby, for example, the release of oxytocin also triggers the release of the endocannabinoids, which make you feel good, and the opioids, which also make you feel good. And so there is a kind of built-in reward. So Mother Nature is not just saying, you know, I've got to wire this sucker so that she takes care of the baby, but she feels good doing it. The combination of oxytocin and its wiring system and the endocannabinoids and its wiring, their wiring system has been really important in doing the fundamental work of sociality in making us bonded to each other, attached to each other, wanting to help. And with small genetic changes, the attachment can be, as it is in prairie voles, to mates as well as to babies. Or it can be to others in your kinship line, or it might be to friends. And that will vary, as we know from observations that it does, across various mammalian species. Although the story gets very complex at this point, you can kind of stand back and say, well, it looks like the sort of basic platform for sociality really has its roots in a funny place. 
in food, <laughs> in endothermy and the need for food. And you can trace then how it comes to be and why we are social in the wonderful and extraordinary ways that we, among other social mammals, are. So so the basic premise of this book is that the neurobiological underpinnings of conscience are related to the fact that we're wired to be social. Yes. And even more fundamental is the fact that we are mammals. Yes. When you're looking at this from a science point of view, what can science tell us about this? And what are the things that it, it can't tell us? Those are both really, really important questions, because I think there are definitely things that science can tell us about. And I think the origin of sociality as the origin of morality is one of them. But what I think science can't tell us really is how to answer very specific questions about how we should get on together. And that's going to be especially true in developed societies where our social norms are a long distance from the fundamental norms that might guide us when we are hunter-gatherer scavengers. So it's not going to tell us, for example, whether the Roman Catholics are right to say that contraception is morally heinous or whether it's morally okay. It's not going to tell us that. That's something we have to work out in the old-fashioned way. I think there, the old-fashioned way really is for people to come together, to listen, to talk, to sometimes make decisions to disagree, to say, okay, you do it your way, we're going to do it our way, and it doesn't really matter for the other important things that we need to do here. On Brilliant Science, we often talk about the value of learning a new language, but for most of us, it can be hard to find the time. That's where Babbel comes in. It's a language learning program that you can do in convenient 10 to 15 minute chunks. It includes interactive dialogues, so you actually learn to speak the language. Another cool thing is that you can do it on your desktop or use the mobile app, and it syncs between all your devices so you can work on your new language whenever you have a few minutes. There's lots of different languages to choose from. You can try Babbel for free. Just go to babbel.com or download the Babbel app. So try it for free. That's Babbel. B-A-B-B-E-L dot com or download the app for free. Babbel, speak a new language with confidence. So there will be many, many different kinds of solutions to social practical problems. But science can tell us in some instances what the consequences might be of one choice rather than another. But ultimately, as science, it's not going to be able to tell us what is the right answer. Now, having said that, of course, science is 
themselves are all social creatures <laughs> and they all grow up acquiring a moral perspective our reward systems pick up social conventions social customs social norms and so we are all as scientists going to have a point of view but it's really important here not to be arrogant. I mean, I think one of the kind of unfortunate things of Sam Harris's early book on the moral landscape was he said, if you really look at it closely, what neuroscience tells us is that utilitarianism is correct. And actually, this, I mean, this is just really not true. And there's all kinds of reasons why it's really not true. And I, I'm sure Sam regrets that now, but that was a most unfortunate thing to say. We have other instances, too, perhaps more from philosophers who feel that they've thought about this for quite a long time, and their point of view is more to be taken seriously than anybody else's, so, you know, stand aside. And I think that's really, really not a great way to go about this. There are going to always be social issues of great delicacy where we often have to listen to many people from many perspectives. And having come from the farm, you know, I have to say that there were many farm people, males and females, who were morally just a lot smarter than most of the moral philosophers that I've had the good fortune to meet. It was partly because they had to be very practical, and many moral philosophers are not required to be practical at all. They can just dream on in their ivory tower about some hypothetical example. I think it's very important to take people from all walks of life very seriously in how they think about moral issues and the fact that they might not have read Heidegger or, I don't know, Hegel or something doesn't really matter. <laughs> so what I was thinking along these lines is, you know, a lot of the work that we sort of have as our basis for beginning to understand these things is from animal work, like with the voles. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot harder to figure out what's going on in the human brain. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples you gave early on in the book was the question of what's happening at the brain level when one social group is being aggressive toward another? I mean, that would be a really important question to know the answer to, but we really can't at this point. I think that's right. I think that that is a tremendous limitation. And while we can learn quite a lot, as you point out, from animal studies, it's always going to be an inference. And different species of animals handle aggression in different ways. So it's always a slightly tricky thing to draw an inference from an animal study to a human study. I think anthropologists have done us a tremendous service in studying hunter-gatherer groups to the degree that there are many left, which of course there aren't. But in the book, I do talk quite a lot about the early work of Franz Boas. He was the one with the Inuits? Yes. So he studied the Inuit in the second half of the 19th century. And this was at a time when 
the Inuit were still pretty much as they had been for thousands and thousands of years. And I think it gave us tremendous insight into two things. One is how their social norms fit so well, given their lifestyle, given the ecological conditions they had to live in. And the other one was how happy that these individuals tended to be and how they managed without anything. I mean, Bo, Franz Boas was so astonished by the lack of strict rules. He said, you know, it's actually rather anarchical, these, these hunter-gatherer societies in the, in the Arctic. But he writes about aggression, and it's something that has been studied amongst the Inuit since then. And one thing, of course, is that life was so difficult in the Arctic that really bad behavior couldn't be much tolerated. And disputes, usually there was tremendous sort of pressure from the group to settle a dispute. And one of the ways that they had of settling the disputes which is still existing, actually, is the song duel. So if, for example, two men were in dispute over a woman, everyone would eventually gather for the event, and one would sing about the other and try to make him look stupid and silly and have qualities that were not considered admirable by the group. And then the other one would try, and they'd go back and forth and back and forth. And eventually, the the members who were watching would sort of side with one. This guy really had the better song, and he should get the woman. And often that was the end of it. And when it wasn't the end of it, then they had this thing where they would hit each other on the head. One would have to sit very still and the other one would give him a great bloody smack on the head. This was, of course, very dangerous because, (laughs) as we know from football, but that tended to be fairly rare. And sometimes one person was sufficiently injured that the injuries met the end of him. So that was one thing that we learned was that when ecological pressures are very severe, people don't put up with bad behavior because they can't afford to. The other thing that was quite interesting in Boas's account was the fact that, by and large, they didn't go to war against each other. And again, the ecological conditions played a big role. I mean, what would be the point, first of all? What would you do? I mean, what would be the idea? <laughs> And secondly, you can't really sneak across the tundra, even (laughs) at night, you know, there's no trees to hide behind, there's no jungle. So what they did do, because of course, access to sex partners is a very crucial part of any society, was they would have big summer festivals, and that was an occasion for males and females from different groups to meet, and then to marry and, and so forth. So how they handled these things in a very practical way, I think, was was really very, very useful and is echoed in many other groups in very different kinds of ecological conditions who aggression may have been more rewarding for them. And, of course, much has been written about that. So your general point that we can learn a little bit from animals is true, but we can also learn something from the anthropologists. I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about 
experiments with oxytocin because Mm -hmm. your discussion with that was a very good example of the need to apply critical thinking when Mm. when reading about experiments would you would you just talk about that one because that's one that's really out there in the mainstream media in a very exaggerated form Yes, it's true. Um, I think oxytocin became a great interest as a result of the vol work, and people realized that having lots of oxytocin in in the brain was really important for a parent-infant bonding, for example. It's important for mate bonding, and it's important in many aspects of sociality. And so it occurred to people to wonder whether or not you could change people's behavior by giving them oxytocin. Let me just make one more aside that I should have said earlier, and that is there's an interesting relationship between stress hormones and oxytocin. And roughly speaking, the relationship is this, that when oxytocin levels go up, stress hormones fall. So that When you reconnect, for example, with a loved one, your anxiety goes down, you're embracing, your oxytocin levels go up, and your anxiety goes down. That's part of the reason why animals groom, especially if there's some tension. For example, you see this in baboons, you see it in wolves, you see it in dogs. If there is some tension and they want to release the tension, they'll groom each other. And oxytocin levels go up, cortisol levels go down. So people thought, well, gee, that's pretty interesting. So what would happen if you put oxytocin into a nasal spray and gave it to humans by spraying it up the nose? Now, We know you can get big effects from oxytocin in prairie voles if you inject it directly into the brain, but that's not an option in the case of humans. So the question was, if we used a nasal spray, would we see any difference in behavior? And the first study that was done was done in Switzerland in Ernst Fair's lab by Kosfeld and his colleagues. What they did was they gave some subjects uh, nasal spray with oxytocin and some without. And then they had them play a game where you would make more money if you and your partner were in a trusting relationship. I won't go into the details of the game, but suffice it to say that you would do better in this game if you were more trusting. And what they found was that in the group that got the oxytocin nasal spray, that yes, indeed, they were somewhat more trusting and they did end up making more money. This set off a huge explosion of work using oxytocin in a nasal spray. As you may imagine, it occurred to people who are parents of children with autism or who are working on autism to wonder, If we gave a child with autism nasal spray with oxytocin, would it change their behavior? And there was some preliminary data, but it all kind of came unstuck, which is very sad, actually. But science is science. And here's how it came unstuck. Some of us kind of wondered, how does oxytocin actually get into the brain when you shoot it up the nose? (laughs) And I think what most people thought was, 
Well, it's kind of like cocaine, right? You snort cocaine, somehow it gets into the brain. Same thing with oxytocin. And that seemed quite reasonable, except it's not. (laughs) It turns out that the brain has this thing called the blood-brain barrier. And the brain is protected by a kind of membrane everywhere. Indeed, if you put something in the nose, in order for it to get into the brain, as cocaine does, it has to cross the blood-brain barrier. Now, cocaine does. How about oxytocin? No. It's very resistant, the membrane is, to having oxytocin cross it. There can be some, what they call active transport, but it's very rate limited. And it turns out that you can't really get oxytocin in the brain that way. And yet people had, there were positive results all over the place. about The good effects on sociality of spraying oxytocin in a nasal spray up the nose. So what was the story? Well, there were really kind of two tremendously important results. One was a meta-analysis of all of those papers, all of those reports of positive effects. And all of them were flawed. Even the original Cosfeld one. It turned out they didn't have very many subjects and the effect accounted only for 17% of the variance. And when you actually look closely, it really wasn't very convincing. And many of the other studies that went on to show or to claim effects of oxytocin up the nose had similar defects. So then the second really major problem for the whole nasal spray story apart from the understanding that it did not cross the blood-brain barrier except with great difficulty. The second blow came from the UCLA group, Naomi Eisenberger and Matt Lieberman, and they did a huge study to see whether or not if you did uh, nasal spray and tested for effect, were there any real results? And these were not just, you know, 15 to 20 subjects. These were thousands of subjects. And the answer was, they didn't get any effect. I want to share a tool with you that will help you to take control of your time by handling repetitive typing tasks. It's called Text Expander, and it's available for both Mac and Windows. With Text Expander's intuitive visual interface, you can create snippets containing words, phrases, and even entire documents. When I got the opportunity to include Text Expander as an advertiser on Brain Science, I was really excited because this is a tool I literally use every day. If you would like to get 20% off your first year of Text Expander, just go to textexpander.com forward slash podcast and be sure to tell them that you heard about it on Brain Science. That's textexpander.com forward slash podcast. So, I mean, as you know, with different individuals, They might think that, oh, they got a nasal spray, something's happening. But if it's a small group, you can always get outliers that skew your results. So the nasal spray story kind of came unstuck. And I think for the people who had hoped 
for an effect of treatment for autism. And in some cases, it was also used as a treatment in schizophrenia. I think it, it is a regrettable result. But on the other hand, you know, <laughs> the data are the data. But there is still this belief out there that if you've got a shy child in kindergarten, you know, you order yourself some oxytocin nasal spray on the internet and spray it up her nose and, you know, she'll be fine. I was actually relieved when I read about that because I was thinking about all the ways that could be abused. You know, you go into the car dealership and somebody has spiked the air with oxytocin and so you know you're you're trusting them when you shouldn't be that's what I was thinking of well that's very reasonable also yeah I mean there are lots of conditions where we should not be trusting where we you know should be a little bit wary a little bit careful thank you very much absolutely so I really appreciated the fact that You always, in your work, examine experimental results very critically rather than accepting them just at face value. And so I wanted to spend some time on on a different experiment, which was one where you were very, very skeptical, but came to the conclusion that, that, as you say, the data are the data. Do you know the experiment I'm referring to? Yes, I do. I think this has to do with sort of ideological attitude and brain scans. It's certainly the case that our attitudes towards various things differ as a function of our personality, our temperament, our character, however you want to say it. And some of those things are probably quite innate. We now know really from behavioral genetics that some of the personality features that we have are highly heritable. And by highly, I mean, you know, at least 50%. I think of that as highly because I would have thought that whether you were, I mean, before I read the data, I think I thought that personality features were largely shaped by your culture and your education and your experience and the things that happened to you. And I certainly thought that about ideological attitudes, whether you tend to be rather conservative or whether you tend to be rather, shall we say, progressive, that those attitudes are probably largely cultural. And there is a cultural factor. But here, too, behavioral genetics suggests that they're about 40 to 50 to 55 percent heritable. There are some behavioral studies that show some interesting differences in responses between people who identify themselves as very conservative and people who identify themselves as very progressive. On the basis of these differences, one would be This, for example, that when shown a series of pictures, if a picture is a very troubling picture, the very conservative people tend to focus their eyes on it longer. Not a big effect, but it's a a robust effect. And there were some other similar kinds. And this prompted a political scientist called John Hibbing to say, well, this is maybe a crazy idea, but I wonder if there are any differences that you would see in a brain scan between those who, on a standardized scale, rank as very conservative versus those who rank as very progressive. 
And so he talked to Reed Montague, who was a really brilliant neuroscientist at Virginia Tech. And Reed thought it was a Nazi idea. He said, no, 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 no. But Hibbing pressed, and eventually they did the experiment. And they had to think it through pretty darn carefully. And But the idea was as follows. Suppose you use images that have nothing to do with anything political. So, for example, it might be a lovely picture of a mountain stream, or it might be a picture of a person with worms squirming out of their mouth. So you would have a series of pictures, and some are what you and I might want to call disgusting, and some are what we might call beautiful, and some are neutral, and so forth. So what they did was they had a large number of people, I think it was 185, and they would put them in the scanner and show them the pictures. They would record the brain activity as the pictures were observed. And then at the end, they would ask people to go through what's called the Wilson-Patterson Attitude Inventory, which kind of is an old reliable for determining whether you're very conservative or very progressive or somewhere in between. Okay, so I have to set this up. I'm sorry, it's kind of a long setup, but if, if I don't tell you the setup, the results will be meaningless. So... What were the results? Well, what they found was that if you showed a person just the picture of the face with the squirming worms in the mouth, that you could predict where they fell on the attitude inventory with a tremendous degree of accuracy, about 85% accuracy. They could look at the scan and just see. So what did they see on the scan? And the answer was that certain areas, areas that we don't think of as being particularly connected or having a function of any specific kind, but a certain set of areas in the very conservative people were highly responsive to the worms in the mouth, whereas for the progressives, they weren't very responsive at all. So this was a very, very surprising result. I mean, one thing you want to say is, well, what does that mean? And the answer is, well, who knows? (laughs) Because we don't understand how these areas function together. Or is it just that there is a higher level of anxiety or responsiveness? But that doesn't seem to be exactly correct either. And it wasn't the insula. It wasn't. And that was rather interesting. So then there was a third component to the experiment that I think is very important. After the two earlier components, after the scan, after the ideology inventory, they asked the subjects to look at the photographs again, and they asked them to self-report how they felt. So here's what you would predict, or what I predicted. (laughs) I predicted that the worms in the mouth, the very highly conservative we know had a high level of activity in these areas, I would predict they'd say, I found it really disgusting. The reverse would be true for the progressives. That's not what they found. 
it turned out there was a real disconnect between the high level of activity in the areas responding to worms in the mouth and self-reporting. A conservative might get a high level of activity and say, well, I didn't find it particularly bad. And so when I looked at the worms in the mouth myself, I thought, it doesn't really matter whether I find them very upsetting or not very upsetting. That's not going to tell me anything about those areas that are ideologically responsive. And I found that quite extraordinary. So the fact that there's no correlation between the person's conscious response to the picture, that just reminds us that we can't tell what our brain is doing by introspection. (laughs) There's an awful lot going on that we have no introspective access to at all. Suppose you think, well, I am very conservative, but, uh, you know, I'm trying to introspect my brain here about why I am, but I'm not getting too much. (laughs) Well, that's no surprise. (laughs) It's a really important experiment. Interestingly, I think it was recently uh, referred to in the Atlantic also. But it is, I think, a very important experiment in just kind of reminding us that Sometimes we think our ideological attitudes are rooted in pure reason and the pure understanding of the morality of the issue. But you know what? It's always messier than that. Your personality is going to play a role, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whether you're a conscientious person or not, whether you're a generous person or not, these things are going to play a role in all of that. So it's not like there is a great sort of platonic realm of absolute but pure truth. That's okay. I mean, I think we can get along very well despite the fact that there is no such thing as that. We've done reasonably well over the last 300,000 years. So I think we should be able to struggle on. (laughs) But I think it is a very important and a very surprising experiment, but it's also important not to read too much into it. We don't know what that means. We don't know really why these areas are highly responsive in one group and less so in another. And we can't even attach a value to that. We can't say, gosh, those poor progressives, they don't even respond to this. No, well, the Cretans aren't they. I mean, we can't say that because we don't understand really what this means in terms of the overall functioning of the brain. But I like the experiment because it surprised me and it made me think and it kind of set me back on my pins and I did not foresee anything like this. And a good scientist loves the surprises. At least sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. At least sometimes. <laughs> good yeah. point, good point. But no, I take your point that when we've been trundling on for years with certain assumptions about, you know, it's all cultural, it's all education, it's all this, it's all that. And it turns out, well, actually, no, you're wrong about that. Some of these characteristics are highly heritable, at least to roughly 50%. And that's not everything but it's not nothing. So, Pat, the first time we talked back in 2009, you you reflected on the fact that you had originally become a philosopher rather than a scientist, because when you were young, the big questions like the origin of consciousness were considered to be outside the realm of science. 
So I want to conclude by asking you a question that you probably get asked often by prospective students. If you were a student today, how would you choose between neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy? One of the things that we do know that happened after neurophilosophy was published is that a number of people who had been thinking about going on to graduate school in philosophy chucked it and went into neuroscience. (laughs) I still get email from people saying, yes, I'm now a full professor at X and Y, uh, but, you know, I did all this because I read neuropathy. I still find neuroscience tremendously exciting. There's so much that is being discovered on a daily basis, and even when it's puzzling as Some of the things we talked about today are puzzling. I just find neuroscience tremendously exciting. So for me, the right question would not be whether to go into neuroscience or philosophy. It would absolutely into neuroscience. But the right question then would be, which part? (laughs) Right? I mean, neuroendocrinology or motor control or, I mean, there's just so much. Uh, I think the people who work on sleep and dreaming do an amazingly interesting work. The people who look for different cell types in cortex, not all of these things are to everyone's taste. And so you kind of find your, your way through and you find out what is really an area where you feel like you're in the grip of the question and you really want, you passionately want to find an answer, but where you can actually make some progress as well. I think philosophy in Europe is much more in tune with the sciences than it is in North America. And I think that's somewhat regrettable. And I think at the moment, if you look at the graduate syllabi for courses at the, as I call them, the big money schools on the East Coast, you'd be kind of disappointed by what you see. There isn't much. There sometimes are connections between neuroscience and psychology and the philosophical problems, but not a lot. Yeah, that is unfortunate. And that may change, you know, with the next generation, but uh, we'll see. There are wonderful opportunities for collaboration. It saddens me often to see that what philosophers want to do is tell neuroscientists how to do science and what a real explanation is. And <laughs> Those aren't usually appreciated. <laughs> They're not usually. But on the other hand, I think there certainly are places where there is fruitful collaboration. And I'll just Give a shout out because it's one of my favorite places. I think, you know, Duke University is really caught this in the 80s and they realized where things should go in philosophy and the sciences. And Duke is fantastic. Well, I'm sure there'll be some listeners out there that take that up as a thing to look into. You've given us a good snapshot and also left lots of stuff left in the book for people to actually read the book to learn. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I love to talk about it. So I'm thrilled to have the opportunity. Thanks so much, Ginger.
It was great to talk with Patricia Churchland again. She's always a very popular guest. Her new book, Conscience, The Origins of Moral Intuition, is accessible to readers of all backgrounds. I want to briefly recap a few key ideas. The main premise is that the faculty we commonly call conscience is a function of our brain. This fits with the overwhelming theme of this podcast, which is consciousness also arises from the brain. Dr. Churchland starts with what makes having a mammalian brain unique. First, mammals are warm-blooded, which means they need more food than cold-blooded reptiles. Another important element was the development of the cortex, which is unique to mammals. In the book, Dr. Churchland goes into much more detail about how the structure of the cortex allows for what she calls big learning, which refers to the kind of flexible learning that sets mammals apart from reptiles. One consequence of evolving bigger brains is that most mammals are born very immature, which means care by the mother is essential. And this is the first step on the way to becoming social, because it's the first step for caring for someone else. The story of the prairie and montane voles shows that the behavior of two very similar species can be very different just because of the difference in the number of receptors of a certain neurotransmitter. It's also very important to observe that the monogamy of prairie voles doesn't rely on religion or beliefs of any sort. One issue that we didn't explore in great detail was the role of culture. But this clearly affects what we see as right and wrong. Science can tell us how our brains develop these abilities, but it can't tell us what is right or wrong. Another issue Dr. Churchland addressed in the book was how cultural norms do change, often very subtly over time. Conscience, the origins of moral intuition, is a fascinating combination of neuroscience and critical thinking. I highly recommend it to listeners of all backgrounds. I want to take a moment to remind you about the free Brain Science mobile app, which is available for iOS, Android, and Windows phones. It's a great way to listen to the show and probably the best way to access premium content. Also, from time to time, there's extra content on the app. And for this month's episode, I'm including... Episode 55, which was Dr. Churchland's original interview from 2009. I hope this will give you a taste of the great back catalog that's available to premium subscribers. The premium subscription was actually started back in January of 2014. And to be perfectly honest, the modest income it has provided has kept me from quitting several times. There are now several options for helping to support my work financially. The premium subscription gives you access to the entire back catalog as well as episode transcripts. Patreon supporters get to choose how much to contribute each month, and each tier has different benefits, ranging from getting new episode transcripts up to getting ad-free content. If you are a Patreon supporter, be sure to check your account to make sure that you are assigned to the correct tier. PayPal has always been the most popular method for single donations, but you can now also use Venmo. 
either online or via the mobile app. The best thing about Venmo is that if you had to be tied to your checking account, your entire payment goes to me or whoever else you're paying. If you use a credit card, they usually take at least 3% off the top. On Venmo, I am Doc Artemis. You can learn more about these options on our website, brainsciencepodcast.com. And while you're there, I hope you'll sign up for the free newsletter. That way you can get your episode show notes every month automatically. Please let me know what you thought about this episode. You can email me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com, submit voicemail at speakpipe.com forward slash docartemis, and you can post comments on the Brain Science Podcast Facebook fan page. Before I close, I want to give you a heads up about my future plans. I'm currently training to become a certified professional coach. The main tool of coaching is asking empowering questions that help people to live more fulfilling lives. Coaching can be helpful in a wide variety of situations, both personal and professional. But it really appeals to me because I like the idea of helping others without having to try to fix them. I intend to use my knowledge of neuroscience to ground my practice in science-based methods. I'll continue to give you updates over the next few months, and I anticipate that I'll begin accepting a limited number of clients in the late fall of 2019. If you'd like to learn more, you can email me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com or visit brainsciencepodcast.com forward slash coaching. I will be back next month with a new episode, but until then, I hope you'll check out my other podcasts, Books and Ideas, and graying rainbows. Thanks again for listening. Brain Science is copyright 2019 to Virginia Campbell, MD. You can copy this episode to share it with others, but for any other uses or derivatives, please contact me at brainsciencepodcast at gmail.com. The new theme music for the Brain Science Podcast is Mindfire by Tony Catraccia. You can find his work at syncopationnow.com.